Please be aware, the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and yes, in some cases, even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night, monsters lurking under your bed or deep in the forest, that unknown creature lurking just out of sight, and frighteningly imagined creatures, ghosts, supernatural beings, or unsolved mysteries. So... Sit back, grab your favorite drink, and prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, I decided to start the year off with a great story. Or, well, I at least think it's a great story. I hope you will too. So, with that said, we will be playing our drinking game. And as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, my darlings, is always yours, so choose your poison accordingly. Alright, now for the game part. How about every time I say murder, that will be a single shot. Be aware, I'm not going to say it like that every single time, so chill. And every time I say short, that's going to be a double shot. All right, now that you're scratching your heads wondering what I'm up to. All right, we've got that business end out of the way. We can jump headfirst into today's Dark Enigma. So, welcome to the new year and a new episode of Dark Enigma. And we're diving into the horrific Black Dahlia murder mystery. And has it been solved? (gasps) I think so. Maybe, maybe not. We'll find out. Elizabeth Short was just 22 when she was murdered in the most savage way, and her death is still one of the most notorious crimes in Hollywood history. She was found tortured and cut in half, her face horrifically mutilated by the psychotic sadist who left her remains on a sidewalk for a mother and her child to find. It was a murder obscene enough to shock even jaded Los Angeles to its core. And the specter of 22-year-old Elizabeth Short still lingers to this very day. Elizabeth was found on January 15, 1947. Her body horrifically disfigured after her death. Initially, people thought she was a mannequin and her remains had been cut in half through the abdomen at the ribs. Each half had been placed around 10 inches apart, and her mouth was slashed ear to ear in the manner of the most terrifying of clowns. A post-mortem suggested that Elizabeth had been tortured before she was killed. She had been forced to eat feces. Her organs, including her uterus and intestines, had been removed, and her body had been completely drained of blood before it was dumped. Her killer had also washed her remains, including her hair. She was identified by her fingerprints, having been arrested years before in 1943 for underage drinking with soldiers. Because who hasn't done that, right? She became known as the Black Dahlia, a title alluding to the mystery of her death, 
her choice of clothes, and her head of distinctive raven hair. The killing unsolved for decades was used as a macabre morality tale for girls like Elizabeth, who went to Hollywood in the 1950s to seek their fortune. It is this narrative that author Pugh Eatwell believed helped Elizabeth's killer walk free after he was ordered to get rid of her by a Hollywood businessman with links to both the criminal underworld and the LAPD, who she claims helped to cover up the case. Young and with little money, she was known to hang around with men for a free meal or a ride home, and she lived a very carefree lifestyle. Her portrayal in public slowly changed from innocent victim to a woman who went home with and entertained the attentions of men. Because you know what? When they don't like you, they make you a prostitute. The narrative perfectly fit the cover-up, and the police and press at the time began to present the case of a woman who was a slut, allowing the focus to shift from who murdered Elizabeth to the danger of her situation. There was a lot of anxiety at the time about women in post-war America going to Hollywood and L.A. hoping they would be spotted and become stars. This was a huge way of warning young women, if you just want to go to Hollywood to be seen, what could happen to you? Pugh believes there is overwhelming evidence that Leslie Dillon, a 27-year-old drifter and bell worker, carried out the murder after being instructed by Hollywood businessman Mark Hansen to get rid of Elizabeth. Hansen, who was known to have links to the LAPD, had reportedly become obsessed with Elizabeth, and then tired of her, and after Dylan went too far and put him in the frame, used his connections to hush up the investigation. Dylan contacted Paul DeRiver, the only psychologist to be employed by the LAPD, initially offering to help find the killer. When they spoke, Dylan revealed details that only the murderer would know, which are actually revealed in Pew's book. De River produced a psychological profile of a killer that was to reveal the mindset behind the murder. This was a very early case of criminal profiling, in fact the first being done to create a profile of Jack the Ripper. He considered the profile of the Dahlia killer the way the body had been cut in half, the parcel of belongings that was mailed into the press with a letter. This suggested the killer really craved publicity. And it was clear from the disposal of the body in such a public place that the killer wanted his grotesque handiwork to be found. This element of the murder was to persist throughout the investigation as he sent a package of her clothes and mocking letters which received by the media were signed the Black Dahlia Avenger. Pugh stated, and I quote, A person wrote into DeRiver and DeRiver got permission to investigate this man who turned out to be this Leslie Dillon. In a series of secret interviews he reveals to him things only the killer would know. Some facts the police kept out of the public eye about how the body was mutilated. End quote. One of those facts concerned a rose tattoo on Elizabeth's thigh, which had actually been cut off. A fact that only Dylan knew. De River took the case to the LAPD and asked for permission to investigate. This led to a later announcement by police with a big fanfare that they had a key suspect. Pew added, 
and I quote, Suddenly, two days later, it goes, and they say, well, we made a mistake. Then it emerges this man who committed the murder was connected with a well-known Hollywood businessman who was known to have connections to the LAPD. Pugh describes what followed as a horrendous cover-up. The case was quietly ignored, and instead the story of how Elizabeth came to be murdered, rather than who killed her, suddenly started to dominate. Pugh believes Elizabeth's murder was ordered by Hansen, who had been known to have been in some sort of a relationship with Elizabeth, and was ludicrously jealous when she had other boyfriends. Hansen, who was originally from Denmark, had become a successful businessman by 1947, owning movie theaters and a part owner of a nightclub. He was said to be possessive with women and had links to the L.A. underworld. Yet a number of girls stay at a property in Carlos Avenue, of which Elizabeth was one, and the one he was said to be most obsessed with. Frustrated that she would stay with him but wouldn't, you know, go all the way, Pugh claims Hansen got tired of her and ordered Dylan to just get rid of her. Dylan, a criminal and bootlegger, was chosen for this task, but his psychopathic tendencies meant the murder involved a horrifically gruesome mutilation. And the evidence, Pugh believes, hangs on the Astor Motel, where Elizabeth, Hansen, and Dylan were seen by witnesses. The day after her death, a room in the hotel, cabin three, was found covered in blood and feces, and a package of clothes, similar to what she was wearing, were found. Dylan had stayed in the hotel on several occasions, and witnesses saw him and Hanson there in the week Elizabeth had disappeared. They also reported seeing a black-haired girl there with them, and suspiciously a receipt for an extraordinarily large laundry bill was found at the motel after the killing. Pugh added, and I quote, There is just too much evidence. Five people say there was a room covered in blood on this day. At least four people saw Mark Harvey and two people saw Dylan. Shoes and a handbag were dumped and found in a trash can one block from where Dylan lived. Now, I think if he was alive, there probably would be enough evidence to charge him. So many people were saying the same story and not being listened to. You have so much testi testimony and so many witnesses. For all these people to be mistaken is pretty unlikely. And for all of these people to be lying is even more so. End quote. The investigation into Dylan was suspended and then just stopped. L.A. City Grand Jury took up the case in 1949. They investigated specifically whether there had been mishandling of the investigation and why Dylan had been let go. The Grand Jury filed a report at the end of 1949 when they reached the end of their term and would be replaced by a new team stating that they wanted the case to be investigated. However, just like with the police, the case quietly disappeared, as the LAPD was overwhelmed by allegations of widespread corruption. Pugh, who has worked as both a lawyer and a researcher for TV documentaries, reached her theory by examining papers in the case, including the findings of the grand jury in 1949. Her research took a painstaking three years, which included trying to get a hold of official documents, such as the grand jury's report, which took four months. All her claims are backed up by documented evidence. 
Now, she originally set out to write a non-fiction work on the case, but soon found herself piecing together the evidence and finding what she believes is proof of Dylan's guilt. As she states, and I quote, I didn't expect I would write, I would be writing a book saying this is the killer. Pugh said that her legal background helped in the gathering of evidence from asking for parts of reports to be redacted and doing freedom of information requests to collect all the relevant documentation. Now, as you know, there have been numerous investigations into the killing, as well as people claiming to know the identity of the Black Dahlia murderer. Those have included, most recently, a man by the name of Steve Hodell, who believes that his late father, Dr. George Hodell, was responsible after finding pictures of Elizabeth at the back of one of his photo albums. He also later found that his dad was actually on the list of suspects in 1950 and that the police had bugged their home. Shortly after receiving the news of his father's death, Steve Hodell found himself sorting through his belongings. Though Steve's father, George Hodell, loomed large throughout his early childhood, their relationship had always been strained. George was a grandiose doctor with a distant personality who abandoned the family shortly after Steve's ninth birthday, eventually moving away to the Philippines. As Steve went through his father's possessions, he found a photo album tucked away in a box. It was small enough to fit in his palm and bound in wood. Feeling somewhat like a voyeur, well, he opened it and looked in it. It was filled with the usual pictures, you know, mom, dad, brothers, as well as portraits of the family taken by the world-famous surrealist artist Man Ray, who was a family friend. But towards the back, something caught his eyes. Two pictures of a young woman, her eyes cast downward with curly, deep black hair. Steve still doesn't know why he had the idea, but he looked at the images and he thought to, to himself, my God, that looks like the Black Dahlia. The personal connection between Short and George Hodell suggested by the album photos seemed, well, outrageous at the time. Hers was one of the most brutal murders in American history and, after the Zodiac Killer shooting spree in San Francisco, perhaps the most unsolved famous crime in California. But from that moment on, Steve was hooked. In just over 23 years, Steve had diligently risen through the ranks of the Los Angeles Police Department himself, establishing a reputation as an unfaltering homicide detective. So, like any good cop, Steve started digging. And, well, the details began to add up. Crime scene photos showed that Short had been given a hemocorporectomy. Yeah, say that five times fast. A procedure that slices the body beneath the lumbar spine, the only spot where the body can be severed in half without breaking bone. It was taught in the 1930s when George had actually been in medical school. The letters sent to the press and police from the Black Dahlia Avenger, a man claiming to be Short's killer, also bore a chilling resemblance to George's handwriting. Cataloging evidence has been Steve's life for the last 15 years, during which the quest to connect his father to Short's murder consumed his life. It brought him back to Los Angeles, where he now spends his days in a modest apartment, documenting his father's supposed criminal past in a snowballing body of work, including four books, 
a play, and a very frequently updated blog. And though his first book, Black Dahlia Avenger, The True Story, is little more than hundreds of pages of evidence, listed chronologically like a cop's case log, it made the New York Times bestseller list after it was released in 2003. Steve isn't the first person to claim he solved Short's murder. He's not even the first to claim that one of his parents was the killer. But Steve has dug up a cache of evidence, including law enforcement files that show that his father topped the LAPD's list of suspects at the time of the crime. While law enforcement officials disagree about whether Steve Hodell is a brilliant vigilante or an obsessive crackpot, no one has been able to prove him wrong. That fact has been all the encouragement that Steve needs to keep digging. I would too. The celebrity status of Short's death was driven, in part, by a relentless media. The Los Angeles record carried related items on its front page for 31 consecutive days, and sales and newspapers searched as the LAPD's investigation continued. Part of the intrigue came from the unprecedented brutality of her murder. Before she was killed, Short had been forced to eat feces, flesh, and pubic hair that had been shaved off her body and inserted into her vagina and rectum. Short's uterus had been removed. Long gashes extended her mouth into that eerie smile. It's the body itself which laid the groundwork for endless generations of Black Dahlia zealots, from writer John Gilmore told to an interviewer. And he states, it's like this tremendous, bizarre magnet. And let me tell you, when you start down that rabbit hole, it gets pretty deep pretty fast. The day after Short's body was found, the Los Angeles Examiner sold more copies than it had any other day, except when it announced the Allied victory in the Second World War. Sink that in for a moment. The World War was the only thing that sold out better than this poor woman's murder. Hmm. Sales were fueled by the tawdry way the tabloid press covered Short as a street-walking, sexualized young thing, but the rumors that she was a prostitute were untrue. This sensationalized portrait has endured over time. Her murder has been memorialized in movies like The Black Dahlia, starring Scarlett Johansson, and on television shows like American Horror Story. The Biltmore, the hotel where Short was seen alive a few days before her death, offers a popular Black Dahlia cocktail, and dozens of threads on Reddit are devoted to discovering the identity of her killer. But Steve began investigating his father with a deliberate fastidiousness of the good cop that he had always been. He surveyed the, ca the case from scratch, digging through witness interviews and newspaper archives. He filed a Freedom of Information Act to retrieve the FBI files on the, mur the murder and other information the Bureau had collected on his father. He sent the photographs that he found in his father's photo album to facial recognition experts. One remains unknown, the other he identified as another woman. A handwriting expert determined that there was a strong likelihood that his father's handwriting matched the script on some of the notes the killer sent to the LAPD, but the results were inconclusive. In the archives of UCLA, Steve found a folder containing receipts for contracting work on his childhood home. One of the receipts showed a purchase a few days before Short's murder of 10 five-pound bags of concrete, 
the same size and brand found near Short's body that police believe her killer used to carry her. Steve tracked down a policewoman who reported seeing Short on the street with a man and a woman on the night before she was found murdered, but half a century later, the cop could only remember what Short looked like, not the two other people present. In 2001, after two years of, re of researching the case full-time, Hodel turned to Stephen Kay, an acquaintance who worked in the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. Hodel still wasn't sure he could prove beyond a reasonable doubt that his father was the Black Dahlia killer, but he was convinced his investigation had unearthed enough new material to justify a fresh look from law enforcement officials. Kay, an assistant district attorney at the time, agreed to review Steve's work. Six weeks later, Kay responded with a glowing letter, and I quote, Thanks to some great detective work by his courageous son, Steve, the name of Dr. George Hodel will live in infamy. And if George were still alive, he would have filed two charges of murder against him. Surprisingly, Kay believed that Steve was right. And Steve said, when I had that, that was kind of the moment where I said, okay, Kay solved. Almost as if scripted, startling revelations came after Steve concluded his research. Steve Lopez, a columnist at the Los Angeles Times, received a copy of Steve's book and decided to write about it. While fact-checking his column, Lopez asked the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office for more information on the murder. The DA's office complied, and Lopez received access to a file that Lieutenant Frank Jimison, one of the original officers investigating Short's murder, had left behind in a safe in the basement of the District Attorney's Office. The file, a copy of which the district attorney also shared with the Guardian, contains an assortment of photographs, newspaper clippings, and several hundred pages of typed interview notes, pixelated with age, compiled by Jemison. Buried in the notes is the bombshell that Steve had been hoping for. The Los Angeles Police Department was focused on six suspects in its Black Dahlia investigation, and guess what? George Hodel was on that list. And then... There is the transcript of the period in 1950 when the police were bugging George Hodel's home. Most of the transcript is dull. Hodel has sex. He berates his secretary. He talks about money problems. But on February 19th of 1950, there's a haunting exchange. 8.25 p.m. Woman screamed. Woman screamed again. It should be noted the woman not heard before the scream. Later in the day, Hodel talks to a confidant. Realized there was nothing I could do. Put a pillow over her head and cover her with a blanket. Get a taxi. Expired 1259. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out. I killed her. The surveillance continues routinely, but for one telling moment. Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead too. Lopez's discovery of this file, the surveillance, the confirmation of his dad's place on the suspect list, was a redeeming moment for Hadell, and he still beams when he talks about it, more than a decade later. Here you've got independent corroboration that was in fact the prime suspect. Steve says that, for him, the Black Dahlia case is like a loose thread in a sweater.
You tug on it gently, thinking you've come to the end, and it continues to unravel. There has never been a comfortable end point to conclude his investigation. Each piece of evidence leads to another, in turn leading to another crime. All told, Steve believes he's located a trail that connects his father to dozens of murders stretching across California. Details from murders in Los Angeles led Steve to a string of murders in Chicago, which then led him to Manila and the slaying of a 28-year-old woman named Lucilla Lalu, whose dismembered body had been found situated oddly like shorts. Her body was found scattered about a half a mile from his father's home along a street named Zodiac. Steve took it as a clue, and he said, I thought, no, 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 there is just no way. He worried that there was no way to accuse his father of the Zodiac murders without seeming, well, a crackpot. He said, I had spent all this time and effort and blood and sweat and tears establishing my credibility in Black Dahlia, and now this guy saying his dad is also the Zodiac? It's like, really? And, unfortunately, that assessment has proven largely accurate. After his first book, Black Dahlia Avenger, was released, Steve seemed on the verge of a breakthrough. But, after he turned his attention to the Zodiac and published Most Evil, which argues that his father was responsible for the Zodiac murders as well, interest in his work will has become middling. Ultimately, all of his investigations have produced precious little in the way of real results. Aside from hosting one meeting with Steve shortly after the release of his book, the LAPD has largely ignored him. As Lieutenant Brian Carr, the officer who was responsible for the files, told Cold Case in 2009, and I quote, I don't have the time to prove or disprove what Hodel says. I'm buried in other cases that do have evidence that are possibly solvable, end quote. In fact, most people, aside from Steve, seem to have moved on from the case. Short's two closest family members, her mother and her sister, are dead. Stephen Kay, the district attorney who reviewed Steve's files, declined to discuss the case further. Steve says he has long since given up on trying to sway law enforcement officials. So, I'm going to leave the story right there for you, my friends. I know, I suck. Two potentially good theories on what may have happened. Both really great books if you're looking for a great true crime read. And you know what? You get to decide. Is the mystery solved? Or are we like Steve and still waiting around for another clue to drop? And with that, my darlings, we've come to the end of our episode. I thank you for joining me here today, and I hope that you'll take the time to reach out to me and share your thoughts on what you think. You can always reach me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion for a future show, you just want to tell me what you think, or you want to give me a comment on my new introduction I'm hoping you guys liked, drop me a line because I do reply to all emails. On that note, my darlings, that's all the time I have for you this evening. I thank you for joining me on Renegade Talk Radio, and don't forget to tune in next time, my darlings. See you, my heathens. I love ya. We don't sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.